Welcome to High Alec Maths Forest. Just for our audience, Forest is uh, working with an old friend of mine, Puyan, and that's how we got to know each other. I had an episode recorded um, uh, with, with Puyan, um, and he talked about AI and him, uh, stuff that he's really interested in, and I think it's pretty pretty cool. And then through him, I got to know Forrest, um, and uh, he has quite interesting stuff to talk about as well. So I wanted to have him today, uh, and then I would like to start with asking some questions about your background, like um, how did you, where did you grow up, what did you think about, like professional career, whatever, what's your passion in life, and let's take it from there. Sure. So, hi everybody. My name is Forrest Gustinelli. Um, I'm an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering and a faculty member at the AI Institute. So, um, I grew up in Washington, D.C. and I actually first started um, getting interested in just AI in general because my mom was a secretary at the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department at mm. a Catholic University in yes. D.C. Mm. And, um, you know, she worked for the dean, and um, I still remember him, Dean Charlie Nguyen. And so when I was like six years old, he'd show me the labs and stuff, and it was oh. a bunch of robotics stuff. Right. And um, I just see it, and I was like, I don't know what this is, but I'm just I'm gonna do whatever this is. Really? And even yeah, it, it was it was like just automatically like I wanted to do it, and yeah. um, I even got to sit in in like some of the college classes and stuff, you know, just like at, at six. And yeah. so, um, yeah, that's really why why I like wanted to to do this. Right. And, um, I, I remember when I got this job, I actually emailed, um, you know, Dean Wynn and told him like, you know, oh. Oh, you know <laughs> I got this job. I eventually I was, made it. I made yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, because I would I would ask my mom. I would like I would say, you know, can you get a promotion and get your boss's job? Really? And she'd say, you have to have a PhD to do that. Oh. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm getting a PhD. Oh, I get a PhD. So, <laughs> and I want to be yeah. your boss. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Quite an interesting story. <laughs> so how do you, your career path look like since then? Since childhood and that passion and that story. So. Um, right. So I was, um, you know, um, in high school, you know, you could take electives and things like that. So, mm. you know, you had a good amount of freedom in high school. So I would take a bit more like physics and chemistry and math, you know, also music. You know, I've always been really into music. Yeah. And so, you know, nothing really uh, spectacular in high school. I was always a good student, but I wasn't like inventing anything. But I was, right. I was always like a, a good student. Um, In undergrad, I, you know, I didn't really know what, any of it really was like electrical engineering or anything like that. But I remember in one of the intro classes, they were like, if you want to do robots, you should do computer engineering. So it's under electrical and computer engineering, but with a computer engineering focus. Mm -hmm. So my undergrad was actually in computer engineering, but in my junior and senior year, I took some artificial intelligence classes. I took a neural networks class mm -hmm. and I was like, this is really cool. Right. Whatever this is, I want to keep doing this. Right. In my undergrad, um, right. my professor invited me to do their little um, like research group. So right. they invited me to um, be a part of it. And I still remember like Professor Paolo Bucci and Professor Bruce Whitey. Yeah. And 
they they just knew like I, I really like computer science and you know I, I was doing like extra stuff in the class and so right. I would just I didn't really know what I was doing but I would just do you know research in terms of like chat bots and trying to catch child predators online I didn't know what I was doing but I was like right. you could you know that show to catch a predator yeah yeah, yeah. So, I wish a few episodes know, of it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a, I mean, it's remarkable when you like, just see like the kinds of people that come in. But you know, there has to be a person pretending to be a kid online to catch them in the first place. Mm. And so I was like, what if you could build a chatbot that was designed to catch predators? Oh, and yeah. so that was like the whole research idea I was doing, wow. and I was just so lucky you know to have just such good advisors in my undergrad you know that mm. would like even listen to whatever I was saying yeah. and, you know they gave me so much encouragement yeah. and it was just kind of out of the blue Professor mm. Bruce Whitey was like oh you should um, be a part of this group right. it's like okay sure. excellent did you end up making the the chat bot no I didn't really know what I was doing so I made a chat bot right. based on just stuff I would read online I would just read a bunch of stuff and throw it into, you know, whatever I was making. But it wasn't like a sophisticated chatbot. Right. Like, I made a chatbot, but it was not very sophisticated. All right. I think this is a kicker start. The main, I think the main uh, part of it, or the whole, um, I would say, point of doing it is just getting to know the whole things and being taken seriously and take it to the next level and create something. I think that gives you a huge self-confidence, if, if I'm not mistaken. And is it was it was it like that mm -hmm. it was it was because you know I don't know for for some reason I always felt like I always felt like I wouldn't not that I wouldn't be able to but if I mm. asked to be in some type of research group I'd be told no I have no idea why really? but I always felt like I'd be mm. able to do things but I mm -hmm. was just like oh no you have to be like a special guy it almost mm. seemed like preordained yeah. who got to be in what yeah so, I don't know why but like yeah. then when I got to be a part of it then I saw like oh you know things are a lot more just you know mm. you could do a lot more things than I, I thought I could so it, it was weird because I always thought if there if the problem was in front of me I could do it but just mm. like getting to the point of someone to saying like you know you should work on this problem or you know I'm into yeah. you was yeah, that was the hard part for me. Yeah, it's quite a funny one because I've I've had that uh, so many times as well. And I remember when I was doing uh, my postdoc at um, you said University of Sydney, uh, mm -hmm. we started building up a group to work on um, um, kind of you know um, an analysis of um, brain scan data. So they got the scans from the brain, and and then our job was to analyze it and and see the. Um, connectivity network of the brain and then compare healthy versus depressed or bipolar and it was quite a hot trend at that time and it was one of the kind of the really challenging problems to deal with as well because working with brain is quite difficult because it has like the noise level of it is insane and of course and also the dimension of the problem is quite huge um but i was constantly kind of you know i was part of it and I was actually doing the work, but deep down, I was also was thinking, am I actually part of a, like a, a quite a gigantic team working on a quite a hot topic in the world as well? It was just a quite weird thing that I don't know if it's come from self-confidence or it's just um, something else, but I, I've, I've experienced it a few times. Yeah. 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 That's true. And um, 
I, I was lucky enough to have like um, enough confidence in myself, like in the sense that I never felt that I didn't have the smarts. I just felt that you had to be like, it almost felt like you were preordained from since you were a kid mm. to be do research. And no one told me I would be doing it. So mm. I almost felt like, I, 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 it's so it's so strange. I, I, I don't know. But yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. <laughs> yeah. After my master's in the University of Michigan, so I published a paper um, research with neural networks and um, then I decided to actually switch from University of Michigan, where I got my master's, to UC Irvine, um, right. partly because my advisor, Pierre Baldi, um, he actually messaged me and called me up and he saw my application. And he was telling me about all the research he did. And it was a lot of this interdisciplinary research. So he had yeah. research on bioinformatics, physics, you know, mm. chemoinformatics, these things. Yeah. And yeah. I always wanted to do something that involved fundamental research that could then immediately be applied to um, a real world problem. Mm. So, you know, I, I thought this was a great opportunity. And so that's why I went to UC Irvine. Yeah. Wow. And so there Thanks I did so. research on like yeah. bioinformatics. It feels good as well. <laughs> Working on a, a kind of the real problem that, I don't know, is it, is it for you, it's kind of an impact that you make or it's just cool working on real life problems or something you like know, that? The, the real world problems really, for me, drives the um, drives the search for new discoveries in the field of artificial intelligence itself. Mm. Like when you come up with a new AI algorithm, a lot of times for me, there's, you know, for my own research, a lot of it was, there's this problem I wanna solve. I can't solve it with this method, that method, the other method. Well, you know, I have to come up with some new method or put methods together that mm. um, can be combined to solve it. And so that for me is the driving force behind it. And so, mm. you know, real world problems is, are full of, yeah. you know, have of instances where AI um, hasn't yet been able to solve them. Right. Oh, excellent. Right. I, did, I haven't looked at it that, that kind of, that perspective. Um, uh, for me, it's just normally working on real life problems. It's just a matter of impact and and just doing something meaningful. That's that's kind of something mm -hmm. that drives me to work on. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, in terms of methodology, I think that's that's quite a, a great approach as well because we do need um, right. quite a sophisticated and advanced methods to deal with quite complicated problems as well. Mm -hmm. And real life problems are very complicated. So you can't simplify it. When you simplify it, you get some sort of answers, but which is not wrong, but it's just the, I would say, um, just one way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. Right. So exactly. you got a PhD in there. And then what happened after that? So after I got my PhD, um, I did, I was just at my same institution, UC Irvine, for a few months doing a postdoc. Yeah, and then I I um, got this position at University of South Carolina, so oh. I, I was there only like a few months after my PhD, right. and then on to South Carolina. And now I'm here. Right, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Have you found it uh, hard to get a kind of research position after doing PhD, or it was just kind of easy? Uh, because... uh, I wouldn't. You know, it was like um, it, it was you know hard in the sense that 
when you're applying, what people are looking for is can this person do this line of research for the next 30 years? Yeah. You know, which is really when you're applying for a job, people are like, what are your skills? What can you do? You know, we have these things that are, you know, we're trying to come out within a year. Can yeah. you do this? But then you're thinking like 30 years down the line. And so it was kind of hard thinking in that way at first, but yeah. then you realize that, you know, your research has a lot of different directions that it can go in. And these directions could be open research problems for, mm -hmm. you know, decades. Yeah. And, you know, that part I think was, was different. The, the application process was actually pretty fun. Um, yeah. I liked it a lot, yeah. but uh, yeah, think you have to think a bit differently. I get that. I get that. All right. Talking about AI and um, I guess anybody knows that how hot this AI is these days, but mm -hmm. um, because, um, you know, you worked um, uh, quite intensely in this field and did a PhD and now you're doing research in this field. Um, I like to ask this question. Why you think AI, um, why AI, why you think is important and how do you see the future of it? For some people, it's quite horrifying, and some people really like it. So, how do you see it? Um. So, for AI, I think things I'm most excited about, and this is going to be biased towards my own research, mm -hmm. but um, what I'm most excited about, I think, is the knowledge discovery part of it. So, a lot of my research um, focused on solving sequential decision-making problems. You have to, there's a sequence of decisions you have to make to solve the problem. So um, some really accessible versions of sequential decision-making problems are puzzles. So like mm. the Rubik's cube, sliding tile puzzles, we studied some other puzzles as well. Mm. And, you know, um, we developed algorithms that were fairly domain independent. You just describe how the puzzle works and it can figure out how to solve it. Um, right. But then what we're interested in is, say you don't know how to solve these puzzles. Can it mm -hmm. explain to you how to solve it? Can you give it ideas and it build off those ideas? And so everybody could have their own way of solving it. And right. then, you know, this extends to what if you want to synthesize a chemical for uh, medicine? What if you want to prove a theorem in mathematics? Can mm -hmm. you collaborate with AI and you all both learn from each other to solve this problem? So. Right. You know, this knowledge discovery to me is is really exciting. And right. um, I think we can, you know, just push the boundaries of what we know using AI, work together with AI to learn new things. And mm. also it could be used as an extracurricular learning tool. So if you're interested in something kind of quirky, maybe not too many other people are interested in, maybe you can collaborate with AI to learn more mm. about this thing that yeah. you're interested in. Mm. So that's what I'm really excited about. Now, what people, um, and for good reason, and including myself, are wary about is what happens when AI starts taking people's jobs and yeah. um, makes it hard for people to live. And mm -hmm. so for me, the way I look at this is, you know, I'm at University of South Carolina. This is a public university. Mm -hmm. And then even people who aren't in public universities get a lot of funding from the public. Um, a lot of private companies get a lot of mm -hmm. funding from the public. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. we all go to work and this isn't just AI, a lot of different areas, including medicine and things like this, yeah. publicly funded. And so mm -hmm. we all go to work, we work hard um, and a portion of what we make goes to this research. And yeah. so 
just simply everyone should benefit from it. So, um, you know, we're all paying for it. So we should all benefit from it. I think it's that simple. And nobody should be forced to work, have some of their money go to something that's going to disenfranchise them in right. the future. So, yeah. um, you know, in an ideal world, AI takes your job. Um, you have more free time to go pursue something else you might be interested in. Mm -hmm. But in this world, AI takes your job. And now you're wondering how you're going to eat, how you're going to get um, medical care, where you're going to live. And mm -hmm. I just think that's wrong because you worked really hard to make it a reality. Um, those things that you were accustomed to before should still be guaranteed, mm -hmm. um, even if AI takes your job. So that's yeah. the way I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. What are those examples? What do you think about? Because I never thought about such a thing, actually. But I I like to see if you had any thought on that. Um, what are the things that people can do, actually? If, for example, you're a medical doctor and your job already is taken by AI, you're a psychologist, and sorry, but <laughs> we have an app that can do the things. Well, <laughs> or even teachers. I don't know, but if there are heaps of you, stuff you just online. Listed, you just listed <laughs> three professions that I don't think AI should ever take this, <laughs> these people's job <laughs> doctors psychologists teachers i think should be human always i think uh, ai can be used to enhance what they do right. but i think it's very important humans be the ones making you know decisions here i think they can be enhanced yeah. in terms of ai helping them do a diagnosis but it's so funny because you just named three professions that ai i don't think will, yeah. will because uh, i read books and I've, <laughs> I've heard all these stories that yeah and the concerns as well that uh, you know these these kind of people can be jobless because of it and, and i was thinking well what if actually you know and um, mm -hmm. you know I'm, I'm in education space and you know deal with teachers our teachers well and uh well it's i i guess it's just the um hard time for for teachers to think about a day that is just completely out we don't need you but over time um i'll really realize that teaching is something that it's just highly um connected to your interaction with your students even if you have all different sorts of apps and uh, you know um online materials and things like that still the students need that connection so it's part of it is ingrained within within us so um yeah over time i realized that you can't take it so you might need mm -hmm. to change your role the way you, you run things that that's kind of something that i would like to work on because i create a lot of online content and apps and things like that but um i like to change the way teachers deliver their stuff um you know just get out of that teaching mode and just focus on leadership and then how you deliver your content, kind of, you know, make it kind of fun, interesting, challenging for students, rather than just go through with things and teach it. That, that's kind of something that I'm, I'm kind of interested in. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, but it's just, I guess, it's a consent for so many people that, you know, they're freaked out by the idea of AI taking over. Right. And in terms of what to do, you know, um, I'm not going to pretend to be like um, an expert on this, but what, you know, you think AI takes someone's job, it's because it's more efficient and saves money and things like that. Um, yeah. Obviously, I think these savings that um, people have worked to make a reality should also be passed on to the people that had those jobs. Um, mm. And one solution people uh, think about is, you know, universal basic income, maybe with some control on, you know, uh, price of living, cost of living and things like that, like rent control or certain things to make sure um, these markets don't get out of control. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on it, but I, I just think on a high level, 
when people don't have to worry about these basic things and, you know, we have, we're just so much more productive, we can actually afford for people to um, not worry about the basics of where am I going to live? How am I going to get healthcare? What am I going to eat? You know, mm -hmm. this just frees up people's minds to go pursue, you know, who knows what's next, like, yeah. but just to pursue all sorts of things when your mind is free from the basic worries, you can really yeah. um, spend time doing all sorts of other amazing things and you know it's it's like even like who knows what could possibly come out of it new art new areas of um science and you know just new knowledge like just yeah. who knows but I, I think it would be a beautiful thing if mm. people didn't have to worry about these things and were free to really just um you know do do what they their heart really wants to do instead of you know having to worry about just worrying about how just, to survive just eating you know yeah, yeah, no, I get that. I read a book and uh, I was just talking about AI things and the concern about that. And uh, uh, the author mentioned that people probably can, um, philosophy and psychology probably get more popular at that time because people have time to think about, uh, mm -hmm. I would say, basic questions, um, skill sets. Um, what do you think? Because I know you how much you like it, but... What kind of skills, um, if anybody else is interested in these AI things, um, what's your recommendation? What they actually need to focus on and get better at to be able to work in this field for companies as a re for research, whatever you suggest. I mean, one thing is just um, programming. And there are a lot of different aspects of programming that could go into things like this. So um, in programming, I think of this as something you really have to practice, practice, practice. And I'm, I didn't fully appreciate it until I started teaching at the University of South Carolina because, you know, some students would take my classes and they'd come from a different discipline that didn't mm -hmm. focus so much on programming. And they're, they're, some of them would be fine because I think they still programmed a lot. But others, you know, they programmed just enough to do um, I don't know, like they were doing something in say mechanical engineering or something like this, and mm -hmm. then would have a really difficult time with coding assignments. And then then I appreciated just how much practice went into, you know, getting good at programming. Mm -hmm. But then also, you know, there's so many different aspects that can go into a single research project. For example, you know, in past research projects, not only you're, you're programming in Python, but then you need to program in C++ when you want certain parts of it to go faster, especially right. if, you know, working on pub publishing a paper and you're comparing to other things that were implemented right. in C++. Right. Okay, now you have to know how to do C++. Oh, now you need to do this parallel programming part over yeah. here and um, you have to know, be good at algorithms. That's always, mm -hmm. computer science is, is, is algorithms. So, you know, yeah. you have to be able to analyze um, how fast this is going to run, um, which parts are the most important parts to work on mm -hmm. um, these different things. Also, you know, just a little bit about the architecture of the computer, things like that. There's just, these things all can come into play into a single project. Yeah. And so just knowing about computers, how they work and programming is essential. Mm -hmm. um, math is also very essential and to different degrees, depending on what you're doing, some, mm -hmm. some areas of AI, especially involving proofs and things like that can involve be very math heavy. Yes. Some areas of AI actually don't appear on the surface to have 
much math required. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it is abstracted away. But I think that kind of thinking, being able to think abstractly and um, being able, like I said, with algorithms, being able to figure out what that runtime would be mm -hmm. um, requires some type of mathematical thinking. I haven't been able to put it all together. It's not like you need calculus but or something like that. But I think definitely a discrete mathematics course is essential to yeah. being able to work with computers. Yeah, yeah. Well, what what level you expect them um, to be? Like um, bachelor or just have bachelor degree in math or just doing double degree uh, computer and maths together uh, or do they just need to go beyond that? Like so for the for the uh, computer science students, the background I expect them to have, I expect them to take um, calculus, you know, uh, up to multivariate calculus, mm -hmm. um, have taken differential equations, mm -hmm. um, have taken li linear algebra, yeah. um, know about statistics, probability. Um, so that's that's essentially what I expect their background to be. Mm -hmm. um, so that most computer science students have taken this by the time they get their bachelor degree. Mm -hmm. Excellent, excellent. Well, as a maths person, I did a PhD in applied maths, but right from the beginning, mm -hmm. I did uh, applied maths in, um, in computer science. So I've noticed that, you know, um, maybe from maths perspective, uh, you need to go beyond bachelor degree if you actually want to do uh, substantial work in that space but um it's yeah. all about kind of what yes. you want to do right mm -hmm. yes and no for sure for that when it comes to like actually analyzing you know the properties and getting theoretical guarantees you definitely have to have more than bachelor's degree um level you know of math cool right so so far um programming and mathematical skills anything else this uh you think is needed you, you know, a lot, a lot of what I say is like, um, just what I think, um, yeah. is that you just kind of have to be clever in yeah. um, the PhD because so much of AI is just kind of like sneaking around NP completeness. You know, you're just kind of like toying around this way, hoping it doesn't get you going like yeah. that way. Um, yeah. And I, I think a lot of it is just being a little bit clever, you know, and just a little bit creative. And so... You know, I remember my advisor in my PhD like would would um, be excited if a student was into like music or something like that. Like, mm. you know, I'm into music. He plays the guitar, and he, he yeah. would just be excited if students were into different things. And I think because he thought like that would, you know, make them a bit more creative or something. I don't know, but yeah. I, I do think you have to be like a little bit clever because you have to sneak around the fact that if you just approach this problem head on it's just not going to work because something is just going to grow exponentially mm. or, you know, with its size or something like that. So you kind of have to sneak around that, sneak around this. Right. So, yeah. Right. Being creative. I think mm. outside of the box. So what are you trying to say? Um, I yes. find it quite difficult. Like yeah. <laughs> mm. I find it quite difficult. I don't know what's your experience, but um, creativity is kind of, a, I think it's quite a hard thing is, Mm -hmm. it um i don't know where it does come from actually but it's probably to do with a lot of um i would say or oh, some uh, neuroscientists uh look at it as 
connection between different parts of your brain that normally mm-hmm. you don't have that connection but somehow for some reason these neurons start connecting and then it just fires a new idea i don't know how you look at it but i found it quite challenging in that sense but this is this is a big thing i think about with my research because like imagine just with solving the rubik's cube i've seen you can solve it hundreds of ways and mm-hmm. i've seen all these really clever ways at solving the rubik's yeah. cube and so you know the ai is coming up with its own way of solving it um you know this is still like research that's ongoing mm. and um you know can you actually have a metric for like this kind of aha moment you know how how does the computer actually think create creatively because yeah. you know in the back end it's some algorithm there's something running usually with my research there's some neural network in there yeah how, how do you get to that moment where you just like you know you, you just look at the problem in this different way and then you go oh you know whoa okay let's let's yeah. do it that way yeah and trying to think about that computationally and actually identify it is yeah you know yeah do you do you think computers can be creative a day one day like um, this aha things is, I don't know. It's just, I think it's very unique about human being. Uh, but I don't know. Can can you see that like happens um, in AI field? Um, can robots and computers get to that point? When it comes to this aha moment. So Zygmunt Pislow at UC Irvine. Yeah. Um, he looks at how humans are able to solve these NP-complete problems in relatively efficient way compared to a lot of uh, computers and um, what it really means to have, like, insight into a problem. And, you know, he talks about when you change the representation of the problem and how this can lead to, um, uh, you know, solving the problem a lot more efficiently or getting some insight that you previously didn't have. And so, you know, I think when it comes to creativity like that that's part of it and mm-hmm. um yeah I, i'm just still thinking about the, the whole space of the problem and you can think of all the possibilities the configurations the problems can have as this big set and then you can break it up into these different subsets and you know maybe looking finding a way to think of this new subset of states where you couldn't have thought about it before in the previous representations mm-hmm. like some type of insight and then it has nice structure when you think about it that way or something uh, i'm not sure but you know his his whole um idea about changing the representation of the problem and how that gives you new insight i think is is a big part of it mm. Mm. also do you think the fact that um we have a luxury of having you know de- having facilities a quite advanced mm-hmm. one um, mm-hmm. to make this com- computational work um, easier and faster compared to the past. And I, and I think in the mm-hmm. future, it gets even better. But do you think the fact that we can play around with kind of different sort of orientation or different sorts of combination and that we normally might not be able to think of, that can give us also an insight? Because that's a random process, right? Um, so a computer yeah. can generate all different sorts of possibilities and combination and um, is, is just doing it randomly, maybe even based on the way you designed it. And then mm-hmm. you look at it and say, ah, oh, 
maybe that can work. Oh, maybe I can, you know, add this one to that. But it's just the power of algorithms that can give you kind of a, a, a different set of solutions or I would say possibilities that makes you to think about um, insights or this aha or creativity kind of idea, creative ideas later on. Do you think that can contribute to it? That, that's a that's a really good question. And I think it contributes a little bit, but I think um, we're under the illusion that that is the answer. And I don't think it is. Um, mm. Because if P does not equal NP, I don't think any realistic advances in silicon-based computing is ever going to allow us to look at a much, look at a meaningfully larger set of possibilities because, you know, um, you know, if P is not equal to NP, just the space of possibilities is so huge. There's no way that silicon-based computing is ever going to take a big enough chunk out of it by mm. just being able to process more um, efficiently. Um, yeah. You have to think a bit more in terms of, you know, how can I how can I identify some sub problem and solve that and build on top of that? Or, you know, how can I really think about having good heuristics, you know, just pointing me in the right direction, but, you know, I'm not going to know for sure. But, you know, that's really what I, I keep thinking about when it comes to this explainability, because I can't look at every possible way I can solve the problem. Mm -hmm. I can build a heuristic function that kind of points me in promising ways. But yeah. then I think that really aha moment comes when you find something unexpected that the heuristic function didn't expect, you know, right. um, that's kind of in this other direction and getting there just by using brute force computational power, looking at as many possibilities, um, as many, you know, options as possible only works up to a certain point. And then I think it'll just kind of fall off a cliff um, mm. just because, you know, if complexity is just going to grow exponentially with the size of the problem. Right. Um, so how do you, what do you do in that case? And that's mm. kind of what I hope to understand better. Right. Excellent. And I guess at the end of the uh, end of the day, it's, um, it's about um, evolution of ideas. Um, mm -hmm. You just um, take what's there and then you add your insight to it, take it to the next level. Uh, maybe over time you improve it, maybe other people will join and, and they put their ideas next to your ideas and then, something else something better comes out of it so mm -hmm. yeah it's as are you kind of um uh, i wouldn't say idealistic but um perfectionist in that sense that i'm just gonna come up with a best method to deal with that or it's just you're cool about it so i'm just gonna take it as it is and see where it goes um you know i i whenever i'm coming up with you know, I'm working on an idea. I always get sidetracked with like, okay, it can do this now, but like it can't do all these other things. And the space of other things it's not going to be able to do is always going to be just huge. And so I, I do think I kind of get sidetracked and thinking ideally it should be able to solve this entire class of problems. You know, in artificial intelligence, we, last, we like to classify problems and say, this is like, this is a um, supervised you know, supervised learning problem. Oh, mm. you know, this is a pathfinding problem. You know, mm. this is a reinforcement learning problem. You characterize it. And then you come up with algorithms that can ideally so solve any one of these um, 
solves any instance of that problem in that class of problems. Mm. And so, you know, you build the framework, you know, you, you think about things um, in a formal way, you know, what is the class of problems, you know, define that class of problems formally and then define how your algorithm would work. But then you think, oh, but in this instance, oh no, it's not gonna work in that instance, it's not gonna work. And so, um, you know, this is just always going to be the case and right. I really do get sidetracked by that. Right. Yeah, I get that. When we had um, we had a chat first time, uh, you mentioned that you work for um, a few companies as well. Um, would you like mm -hmm. to talk about that a bit? Like, what type of kind of analysis or job you had there? So all of the work I did were all internships. You know, and this was throughout when I was going to school. So I had three internships with Intel in the Bay Area. Um, I had an internship with Adobe in the Bay Area, Adobe Research. I had an internship with Microsoft Research Asia in Beijing, China. Right. Um, I had an internship with DeepMind in um, London. Right. And then I had an internship with Sentient, which is this startup in um, uh, Southern California in Irvine. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've had a good amount of internship experience. And so I have a pretty um, good idea of, you know, what it's like. Yeah. And... In terms of the skills, you know, this was the big difference in the application process because for the companies you're um, trying to show off uh, what you've done that's relevant to that company, what your skills are. Um, in some of the interviews, you know, they'll have some coding interviews and then they'll have some, a lot of parts of the coding are like actual, what would you actually write? And then other parts are like on a high level, how would you approach this problem? And so that's, you know, when it comes to what would you actually write, that's usually just your familiarity with the mm -hmm. languages. And mm -hmm. then, you know, some of the more difficult ones are, of course, like C++, you know, in the lower level languages, you know, Python, Java are higher levels. So you don't have to get into the nitty gritty of how are you going to save memory and things like that, because they have this automatic garbage collection. You still have to worry about memory, but not at this lower level. Um, and then when it comes to the high level, how would you solve this problem? That's a lot of the algorithms. So, mm -hmm. you know, just knowing, oh, this algorithm has um, this runtime or something like that is often really useful. And then um, sometimes they'll ask if it's related to machine learning, you know, you want to be able to differentiate between different methods. So, you know, and this is probably true for whichever field, they'll ask you, what's the difference between this method and that method? When would you use this method? So on and so forth. What are the theoretical guarantees of this method and um, things like that. And so they'll also come up with these hypothetical scenarios. You have this data, what are you gonna do to pre-process it? What are you gonna do to make sure it's clean? Um, those types of things. Or they'll present you with some problem and say, how would you solve this problem? Um, you know, just what machine learning methods would you use? Um, yeah, so in, so that in terms of the skills, it's like algorithms, algorithms, algorithms. That's so much important with computer science and then just practice with programming. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, right. and, and that's the big difference between industry and academia because academia, it's kind of assumed like, sure, you're in computer science, you can code, um, you, you, you know about algorithms, but like, what are you going to do for 30 years? Yeah, so, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So if someone is interested in working for companies, they need to focus on uh, programming skills a lot and learning Python mm -hmm. and C++. Are you into R at all? Because I use R for teaching. I, mainly. I have used R. I don't want to. I'm not a fan of R. 
but I have used R. I built a whole like neural network in R from scratch to do this bioinformatics thing because that's what bioinformaticians use. But then I switched it over to Python because I've used R. (laughs) You just don't like it. (laughs) Is it it true that engineering mainly like uh, Python and um, statisticians like R? Is that true? Because that's I've heard I've heard it so many times. But do you think that's true? Well, R does have a lot of built-in functions um, that statisticians can use that other languages you have to, um, you know, do a bit more work to actually get to work. So R does have that, which is very convenient for um, statisticians. I've seen engineers, mostly like MATLAB, I think. Um, Mm. I've seen that used a lot in engineering as MATLAB. Even when I was doing, you know, the computer engineering program in my undergrad, we almost mainly use MATLAB. The only reason I know like C++ and Java is because I did the computer engineering side of things. Mm. I I don't even know if electrical engineers would have been too, I mean, definitely the C++ part, but I don't think it would have been too heavy. It was just like mainly MATLAB that they would use. Um, But now Python is getting a lot more popular. I really like Mm. the language, especially with the fact that they now have these type hints. I didn't like the fact that it was just um, dynamically typed. It's still dynamically typed, but you can kind of pretend it's statically typed, meaning like the type of variables can't change. Mm. Um, you can kind of pretend it's not um, mm. with the, your documentation and the type hints. And then, you know, your IDE can give you a warning sign if it's not the right type, which I think is great. And so I really love the fact that it's interpreted. It's an interpreted language and it's um, you can kind of pretend it's statically typed. So right. I think you know, that's one of the reasons it's getting so popular. And you can do a lot with Python. It's it's amazing all the things you can do. So I think it's really growing in popularity. But mm. MATLAB is like, you know, this language that you can do a lot with the linear algebra packages. It's not as strict of a language as, you know, of course, like Java or C++, mm. but you can do a lot with MATLAB as well. Yeah. Yeah, I used MATLAB um, during my PhD, um, mm-hmm. and um, but I didn't deal with a, like a huge data set, and it was kind of fine for research mm-hmm. components part mm-hmm. that I did. Um, but over years, I've noticed that people start kind of you know um, liking Python more, and I was thinking, well, Python and R they're free resources, like you know open resources, mm-hmm. so people can just use it for free. But um, you have to pay for MATLAB. So I was thinking that how these companies can convince people. And it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, but probably if you want to work for a company, companies need to pay for it. Um, and uh, when we started doing, you know, when I was doing deep learning, like there were no packages or anything. We did, actually, almost everything was in MATLAB. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could do the GPU stuff in MATLAB. And MATLAB had really convenient profiling tools. I think it's like all these tools, you can click this, click that, and yeah. you know, do a lot of convenient things in MATLAB. But yeah. um, then it was like C++, where that was like the first deep learning package was in C++, and it was really mm. fast. Mm. And then Python came along, and it was more user-friendly. Right. And then finally, people have made something that's fast and user-friendly in Python. Right, yeah. yeah. All right, so focus on um, Python mainly. C++ after, yeah, <laughs> MATLAB I mean, are... if you like to, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but MATLAB is not complicated, but I haven't found it complicated, um, I mean, coding in MATLAB, but I don't know, that's my mm-hmm. experience, because I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've used it a lot before, but 
because it's just um I don't know it's a lot of inbuilt functions so mm -hmm. make it easier for do a bit of coding and and it, as you said this has heaps of packages as well that you can play around with it yeah. mm -hmm. great and right. uh, obviously a bit of mathematics just on side <laughs> definitely not on side <laughs> no, no. I think definitely should be also part of the main thing <laughs> yeah um, but you you can you can get pretty good at programming not knowing too much about math actually you right. know people get really good just just doing it but I think mm -hmm. when it comes to applying it to a real world problem um, math is extremely important yeah so yeah yeah no, I get that. As, do you think Excel is still is something that people should should learn and and use it, or or, or one day um, that will be banished? Because Excel, Microsoft is pushing a lot to keep it still. <laughs> I, I don't think it'll ever go away. We did in undergrad. We took one class that for a bit we had to learn some stuff about Excel, and. I'll use Excel if I'm like doing a budget or something. But right. um, besides that, I, I don't really use Excel. Um, right. But it's convenient for visualizing things. I think so. Um, yeah. I do simple, so very what, simple calculation is quite quite easy. You just mm -hmm. you know grab columns and then insert this and that. So, but, right. And earlier when I would do plots for like a paper, sometimes they would come from Excel. Now mm -hmm. almost all of them come from Python. That's the other thing is you can make beautiful plots in Python. Right. Um, so yeah. almost all, all of them come from Python now. <laughs> oh, I yeah. get that. It's hard to like getting used to something like Python or programming actually language, getting all these cool graphs and, and move mm -hmm. to Excel. And so what I'm going to do with it sometimes if you're <laughs> like this Python is to click on things because it's just hard <laughs> for me to believe that by clicking you can get things out. <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway cool so and i think well these days um uh, they there shouldn't be that much of problem finding jobs there's so many opportunities it's just a matter of like literally upgrading yourself and getting yourself kind of you know into these maths and computational world and programming and things like that and try it and try it and you eventually get something to work um if you would like to work for companies 